This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Rain Wilson. Rain is an American actor, comedian, writer, director, businessman, producer, and activist. He's best known for his role as Dwight Schrute on the American version of the television comedy The Office. Other film credits include lead roles in the comedies The Rocker and Super, and supporting roles in the horror films Cooties and the Boy. Rain wrote an autobiography called The Bassoon King, and he's also co-founded the digital media company Soul Pancake. Rain Wilson, along with his wife, founded the nonprofit organization Lide. Lide is an educational initiative that uses the arts and literacy to build resiliency and empower at-risk adolescent girls in rural Haiti, helping them to transition into academic or vocational education. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Rain and I spoke about the profound shift of heart that he experienced that led him back to his Baha'i faith and also a life of devotion. We talked about God as the great mystery and what it means to strive to know the unknowable. We talked about art being an expression of faith and how we can be of service through our artistic expression. Finally, we talked about the founder of the Baha'i faith, Baha'u'llah, why he was tortured and imprisoned during his life, and the divine springtime that he predicted will come for the human race. Here's my conversation with the very honest, vulnerable, and funny Rain Wilson. To begin, Rain, I have to say I'm really excited to talk with you, and I want to thank you for making the time for this. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you for having me. I'm uh, thrilled and excited to talk to you. So you co-founded a media company called Soul Pancake. And from what I've been able to learn about Soul Pancake, you explore issues at the intersection of philosophy, spirituality, and creativity, which sounds terribly interesting to me. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, you chew on life's big questions. That's the subtitle of the book, Soul Pancake, Chewing on Life's Big Questions. So I wondered, how would you feel about you and I chewing together here on life's biggest questions? I love it. Really? Let's, let's get chewing. Is it okay if I like chew with my mouth open? That would be disgusting, especially on a podcast, because everyone would hear the saliva. So let's not do that. Okay. Okay. Here we go. So I'd like to know here at the beginning... And then I'm going to share with you what it is for me. But I'd like to know for you, what are the handful, so you can count them at least on, on one hand, that throughout your whole life, these questions seem to keep weaving in and out 
of your life. You return to them, and they're the ones that have really been, you know, in my language, the philosophical driver of your life. Mm. Okay, good. You're going, you're going right to the meat of the thing, right to the most personal question possible, too. I love it. Um, okay, so um, there's many. I would start with uh, one I know the answer to now, but that I Well, that's even better. With. Look, if you know okay. the... I, I'm, I'm happy if you know the answer. That's great. That'll save us um, a lot I of time. I struggled with, is there a God or is there a creator... Um, for a couple decades. So that was a big driver through my life. And I guess it's still, I think it's the biggest question. I, I, believe it or not, I mean, it may seem like there's other big questions, but it, every other question is really predicated on that one. So uh, I still return to that question, but in a kind of a different context, because knowing that there is a creator... Uh, a creative force behind this physical universe and an infinite number of other non-physical universes behind this one um, puts everything into context for me. So I still return to that question even though I know the answer to it. Okay, so let's, let's go into that for a moment. I'm presuming that the answer you came to based on what you just said, is yes, there is a creative force behind the universe. How did you come to that as a definitive answer? So I grew up a member of the Baha'i faith and uh, was quite involved in that religious faith as a kid. My parents were very involved with it. Um, they became Baha'is in the late 60s and early 70s. In fact, I just wrote an essay that I just put out today on patheos.com about the gatherings that they would have with all of these kind of hippie, bohemian, spiritual seekers in their house uh, during that era. It was so prevalent to be digging into these big questions. And for people of that generation, um, spirituality had answers. Nowadays, spirituality is either seen as kind of a, a hobby that you kind of think about occasionally at a yoga class or you're in some kind of fundamentalist religion and there's not much middle ground. Um, it's certainly spirituality in our current American Western culture doesn't seem to hold any answers to life. It holds a lot of like obstacles and uh, sources of disunity and, uh, and division. Um, but it doesn't hold answers. But back in the late 60s and early 70s, people thought that spirituality actually had answers to and relevance to their lives. So remember, this is when the Beatles were visiting the Maharishi and Cat Stevens became a Muslim. People were exploring different religious faiths. They were exploring spirituality and uh, engaging in these big, deep discussions. And my, that's when my parents became Baha'is and I grew up in that milieu um, especially in, the, I was born in the late sixties, but especially in the seventies. And so this is a long roundabout way of saying, uh, Tammy, that I like so many teenagers, once I left home and got out into college for a little while, I just wanted nothing to do with the religion of my parents. So I really turned my back on faith. Um, most of my friends were at least agnostics, if not atheists at that point. I wanted to be a, a bohemian 
actor, artist. I didn't want morality hanging over my head. I didn't want right or wrong. Uh, I was rebelling against my parents. Um, and I knew that leaving the faith and leaving God uh, would really hurt them. So I was partly malicious and rebellious. And I just wanted to do what I wanted to do when I wanted to do it. You know, in my 20s, I moved to New York City to be an actor. And so I really turned my back on, on all of that. And I guess what really happened for me is I, uh, I wanted to be an actor. And I was being an actor. And this was beyond my wildest dreams. And uh, I was actually, like, making a living playing characters and that was was amazing and at the same time I was very unhappy I I was deeply unhappy in my life I was getting into a lot of trouble with drugs and alcohol I was really uh, you know like the what's the 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 Amish kids when they, (laughs) they go off the rails it was kind of similar to that I grew up kind of in a Baha'i home that was all about peace, love, and unity and, and no alcohol and no premarital sex and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. then um, kind of went berserk in New York. But I was really seriously unhappy in my life. And that led me to a long journey of uh, asking that question. I, I kind of, I had this kind of th- you know the, how on a bad movie trailer they have that record scratch? It kind of goes, Err! like I had that record scratch sound effect in my heart that kind of was like, Err! wait a minute, maybe I threw the baby out with the bathwater with this whole God thing. And maybe there is a creator and I just rebelled and just jettisoned all that. And I need to go on a on a journey to discover this for myself. So from around... 26 to 34 was really the, the, the main time that I was really diving into that question. That's the kind of question that one has to answer from some type of inner discovery process. You can't just read a bunch of books or hear what a bunch of other people have to say about it. So that's what I'm curious about. Was there some moment during that time leading up to age 34 where you can now answer this question, yes, there's a creator. How did you get there? What gave you that inner conviction? Well, it, it, was, uh, it was a long journey. It took years. Um, uh, it really hinged around the fact that uh, it's just, it's hard to share kind of what the internal, I'm trying, I want to share what my internal journey was. When you wake up at three in the morning and you're a working actor, I had a, a, a gorgeous, wonderful girlfriend who is now my wife. We've been together 26 years um, at the time. Um, I had an awesome apartment in Brooklyn and that was $700 a month. And like on the surface, like everything was perfect. And yet I would wake up at three in the morning with a kind of a deep longing in my chest of like, is this all there is? I had shifted my kind of uh, my 
almost evangelical Baha'i belief when I was a kid to being an artist. So I really, we really believed that we could change the world through doing experimental theater to the right audience. If we did the right production of, you know, um, the, the three sisters to the right 37 people in a church basement, we thought as actors like, oh, we could shift their thinking and explode their hearts in such a way and have them see the world in a different way. And that wasn't really happening. I was doing, I was working with a lot of great theater directors. We were doing some great theater productions. Um, but uh, um, it, uh, it, it was not changing hearts and minds and lives. And like I said, of waking up at three in the morning and going, What's this all about? Why am I so dissatisfied? Why am so Why am I so chronically dissatisfied? I've got a cool van and and an awesome mate partner. Uh, I'm doing plays. I'm living in New York City. This is my dream, but I'm dissatisfied. And that's just inside. I just had this. Maybe it was my Baha'i upbringing. Um, I thought, well, it really does have to do with God because. If there is a God, if there's a creator, I could be connecting with that creator right now. I could be praying. I could be um, asking for help. I could be asking for guidance. I could be asking to be shown my purpose. So for me, God and purpose were very linked. And if there wasn't a God, then we are a simply a random mashup of molecules in a physical space. There was a big bang. And now we're here and we have consciousness. We're just slightly evolved above monkeys who are just slightly evolved above armadillos who are just slightly above jellyfish. And there may or may not be other conscious life forms in this universe, but there's, there really is no meaning ultimately if we're just random molecules. It's just do whatever makes you happy. And I was doing whatever made me happy and I wasn't happy. So... I started asking my friends, you know, do you believe in God? And my friends all were very, very vague. And this is something that just is a pet peeve of mine. Tammy, I'm not going to lie. It's a pet peeve of people like having a very vague idea of God, of the like, have a, I have a general sense, they would say, my friends would say, I have a general sense there's something out there, but I, I don't know what, but I know it's not a judgmental old man with a beard on a cloud scowling down on me. It's not the God of my parents and my parents' church and my grandparents' church or synagogue or temple or a mosque. Um, it's not that, but I have a general sense of something loving out there that's beyond space and time, but I, I don't know what it is. And I would say to them, well, if you don't know what it is, like, we have to find out. We have to, we, have to, we have to dig into that question. Let's go crazy. Like, let's really dig into that. Like, what does that mean? I don't know. So I would, you know, I would go into nature and I would meditate. Uh, I always felt more connected to purpose and consciousness and reality and a creator or creative force when I was in the beauty of nature um, I went to a whole bunch of different religious ceremonies. I went to Buddhist ceremonies where they were chanting Nam Myoho Renge Kyo, and I went to church, and I went to uh, uh, Muslim uh, gatherings, and um, I started reading holy books. I read a lot of the big holy books. This was a big deal for me for like for ten years. I I took this journey very very seriously. 
Um, and, you know, mine, mine, my journey was a journey of faith. So I, I returned to the faith of my childhood. Um, I like to think that I went back into the Baha'i faith, I, eyes open, well-informed, having explored other religious traditions and other ways of thinking. Um, one of the things that was really important to me on this journey was I read a number of things about Native American spirituality. And that's what really opened my heart to the possibility of a different kind of God. We're so laden with this judgmental Judeo-Christian God and this idea of hell and that if you don't believe in the right way and if you don't have water sprinkled on you in the right way, then you're going to burn in hell for eternity. And that, that's not anything anyone really wants to be a part of. But when I went into Native American spirituality, uh, the idea that, uh, in the, for instance, in the Lakota Sioux tradition, God is called uh, Wakantanka. I've, I don't know how to pronounce it. I'm probably pronouncing it wrong. But this Wakantanka literally translates as the great mystery. And it's the God of nature and of our ancestors and uh, is beyond space and time and is, is just it's God of beauty and mystery and being. And that, uh, um, really, uh, that really moved me and it kind of opened my mind and my heart to a different experience of what a creator could be. Okay, so I am with you with understanding, knowing, having an inner confidence in the great mystery. And I think that's a, a wonderful phrase to use here for this creative force. I hope it's not too vague for you, because <laughs> you're the one who brought it up, the great mystery. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But what I found is that even knowing that there is a great mystery that underpins all of my life and all of life, that has not actually answered all of my questions and other big questions that I wrestle with. So it's interesting to me that you said, you know, once you really know the answer to that, all of your other questions kind of come under that and also, you know, are released in a certain kind of way. It's not exactly mm. the word you used, but help me understand why you believe that's so. Well, oh, you know, there's, um, there's so many different ways to approach that. Um, uh, well, you, you sound to me like you, um, believe that there is a great mystery, that there's something more out there than random molecules. Yes. Yes. So that's awesome. And you're on this journey and you have your podcast and your writing and your company and all the work that you do with different writers and, and the, the CDs, the meditation stuff that you guys do, and you're encouraging other people to go on that journey. You're on that journey yourself, and that's all that's important. So I just salute you and all listeners and everyone that's just on that journey to discover the great mystery because um, that's really what it's all about. So number one, I want to say that. And number two is, you know, is... In the, in the Baha'i tradition, I don't want this podcast to be just a, a plug for the Baha'i faith or something like that, but it is my faith, so I have to kind of turn sure. to it for some wisdom and from what I've discovered. Um, 
in the Baha'i tradition, God is unknowable. And at the same time, we are taught and we say a prayer every day that we have been created to know and to worship God. So how can we be created to know something that's unknowable? And to me, that is, um, it's kind of a, it kind of flummoxes you, but at the same time, it's really exciting. Like, that's cool. Like I can, as an artist, you know, I'm not really, I'm a hacky sitcom actor, but at one point in time, I was an artist and I think of myself as an artist sometimes. As an artist, I love the idea of striving to know the unknowable and that's a journey and it's not a result. But as long as you know that you're on that journey, then that is a God. So that is an answer. Um, the other answer is life is meaningless. We're random assemblage of molecules. So I want to seek out as much pleasure and quote unquote happiness as possible until I die. And then my consciousness will switch off like a light switch and that'll be the end of it. And you can pretend to create whatever meaning you want to create out of it, but that's everyone's just going to create their own separate meanings. But spiritual seekers are on a journey to know this unknowable force. I don't know mm -hmm. if I answered that question. I like, first of all, you addressing everyone on a journey and all of us exploring together, knowing the unknowable. You know, it's interesting. Here we are. We're chewing on life's biggest questions together. And what I want to say to you, Rain, here at the beginning is this is a great joy to me. Like to me, there's a great joy. And like you said, you're getting right to it. But at getting right at what the core is and being willing to talk about it. Because I think so often we don't do that and it's under the surface of our lives. But we don't yeah. actually talk about this thing that's yes. the center point. So, okay, so here's the big question that in many ways has fueled my search for a long time. Not as much anymore, even though I don't know the answer to it. So I'm excited to ask you, which is what happens when we die? Well... Um... Uh, what happens when we die? That's, that's, that's a number two great question because that really goes to question one because, again, if we're a random assemblage of molecules bumping into each other, forming consciousness a step above monkeys, then we die, the light switch goes out, and that's it. So we had a good run, you know, 60, 70, 80, 90 years, whatever we had on the planet. You had a good experience as this kind of very highly evolved animal, and then your consciousness goes away. So that's one option. A lot of people in secular America believe that option. Um, uh, you know, a lot of people in the fundamentalist America believe that, you know, if you believe in Jesus in the right way, in the specific way to believe in, in Jesus or Muhammad, for instance, for that reason, that you will go to a heaven that's for the believers and then the non-believers will go to hell. So I don't get with that. And I think a lot of people more and more, even in the church, are moving away from that. Uh, that belief system. So what happens when we die? So when I had a shift, a profound shift um, inside of my heart where I knew and experienced God in my life, not as a being, not as a man on a cloud, but as a force, as an energy, as music, as art, as beauty, as science, as uh, the largest possible conception I could ever attach to what the creator is. And even knowing that God is much greater than whatever that conception could be. But once I had that, then I knew 
that my journey is a soul journey. I'm on a soul journey. I'm in a human body. Um, as, uh, as Teilhard de Chardin says in a very famous quote, I'm sure it's been quoted on your show many times before, and uh, Oprah likes to use it too, like we're not human beings having a spiritual experience. We are spiritual beings having a human experience. I think that really sums it up uh, from the great Jesuit priest and thinker and philosopher. Um, we are spiritual beings having a human experience. So I try every day. My goal is to witness myself as a spiritual being and not as a human being. My human being, I want, what do I want? I want a sandwich. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I want to have sex occasionally. Uh, I want uh, to be thought of highly by my tribe. Um, I want to be in comfort. These are my, you know, those are my physical human. There's nothing wrong with those things, but that's part of who I am. But I have a deeper connection to who the I is in me, Rain Wilson, and that I is a spiritual being um, that uh, is on a journey. And I'm, I've got a, I got a rental car called a body, and it's for about. 80 or 90 years, I'm going to use this rental car until it falls apart, and then my spiritual journey will continue. So I know this. Uh, um, I would never try and – I don't. It's, a, it's an interesting thing how faith works because I know this. I don't think this or believe this. I know this, but I would never seek to foist that on anyone else. One of the wonderful things, and which is one of the great – questions uh, is, do we have free will? Or what is free will? Or if there is a God, can we have free will? If there's an all-powerful force, you know, is it a deterministic God? How, how do we have free will in that context? But I also know that we have free will and that every listener and yourself and everyone has the ch- power to make their choices in, in this life, in their bodies. Um, in, in my journey, I have come to this knowledge that there is a creator, and I've come to this knowledge that I am a soul. Um, there's a famous quote often attributed to C.S. Lewis, but it's not C.S. Lewis. It was actually some other uh, preacher around his times. Like, I don't have a soul. Uh, I have a body. I am a soul. Mm-hmm. So I witness myself. I am a soul. And I know that the soul will continue on in some kind of form and some kind of journey past this physical one. Now, when you say that every day you have as part of your life this focus on witnessing yourself as a spiritual being, can you mm-hmm. tell me more? Like, what does that mean? What do you do? Is that your meditation and prayer practice? What do you do? Th- I mean, how do you do that? Yeah, um, it is my meditation and prayer practice. I, I pray and meditate every day, although I didn't get a chance to this morning. So I'm <laughs> and I feel a little discombobulated and I should have prayed and meditated before doing um <laughs> doing the Sounds True podcast. But I'm flaw I'm also a deeply flawed human creature and I forgive myself for being deeply flawed uh and every day, and that's part of my spiritual practice too. So prayer and meditation uh absolutely grounds me. We're very focused on meditation these days, and it's crucial. And it's scientifically proven to make you happier, longer life, reduce anxiety, feel more connected, feel purpose, um, to, to ground you. It affects a person in so many positive ways. It's so important. Uh, brings us in the moment. There's so many benefits to meditation. But as a believer in the great mystery, 
prayer, I think, goes hand in hand with meditation. And often prayer is left out. And even people who are agnostic or have a semi-sense of this great mystery out there, this creative force out there, they don't go to the prayer. But I think the prayer is crucial because the prayer is, is asking why. The prayer is beseeching. The prayer is yearning. The prayer is show me the way. Or the prayer is gratitude, like thank you for what I have. What I have is amazing. Thank you. Um, or, or the prayer is what should I do next? <laughs> or, um, or the prayer is just open a door. Open a door somewhere universe. Can you just show me an open door? And I promise if it's open, I'll go through it. And so there's, a, there's kind of a give and take in, pr- in prayer. It's meditation is listening. And if you just focus on listening, that's great. But then you're not really communicating with the powers of the universe uh, as well. So that's part of my spiritual practice. And I talked about forgiveness too, where I forgot to pray and meditate this morning. I got too busy and um, I didn't do it. And that's okay because I'm going to make a lot of mistakes as I go through my life. I've made so many terrible mistakes on the course, on the journey of my 51 years so far. Um, but then what, what I like, Tammy, what's really exciting to me is when I can witness myself um, when I witness my human needs and where my ego is, it's like a part of my spiritual journey is just noticing what are my wants and needs and where are they coming from. And, you know, if I have anxiety, it's like, oh, why do I have anxiety around this? Oh, because I don't know the outcome. Oh, I have anxiety because I don't know the outcome. Well, I can't know the outcome because I can't control outcomes. Oh, what's that like? Oh, that's my human. Of course, I want to control outcomes. Every human does. Every animal does. But I need to surrender that. I need to let that go. Uh, why do I want the, I want the a positive outcome? Because that will benefit me and I will get money from it or I will get esteem from it and I will get praise and status from it. Oh, those are all needs of my ego. Uh, how about that? And so part of my spiritual practice, part of my witnessing my soul is witnessing what my baser needs are. Not judging them. It's totally fine to want stuff. It's totally fine to want a sandwich or to hit a jackpot on a slot machine or have, have beautiful sensual relations with someone or to connect with someone. Or, well, now I'm getting spiritual. It's, it's totally fine to want stuff. You know, our ancestors accrued stuff in caves for you know, the last 100,000 years, it's, it's, we're hardwired to want stuff. But, you know, when, when we have that sense of ourselves as a spiritual soul moving through a physical uh, experience, then, then we get to just notice. We just get to notice that stuff. And that's part of the spiritual practice, just noticing. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. We welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs and receive three free gifts just for visiting us. Go to soundstrue.com backslash free. That's soundstrue.com backslash free. And now back to Insights at the Edge. 
Now, when you talked about your own prayer practice as a kind of dialogue with the great mystery, do you have any guidelines inside yourself? Like, do you touch into a feeling in your heart? Do you just talk about whatever's on on your mind? Like, you know, help me with this thing or whatever comes up for you? Yeah, so in the Baha'i faith, there are many prayers that have been written by Baha'u'llah, the prophet and founder of the Baha'i faith and some others. So I can certainly turn to those when need be. And they're very beautiful uh, prayers for all, all kinds of different occasions and whatnot. So that's, one, that's a little more formal. But and my personal informal prayer, which is also very much encouraged in the, in my, as a Baha'i, um, in the more informal kind of prayer that I do, it's, uh, this has been a long evolution so when I first kind of knew there was a creator and I would pray, I had felt weird praying. I felt like, oh, am I a needy kid? I don't want to pray for what I want. And I don't know how to pray. And is, what does this God think of this weird little creature living in suburban Los Angeles? And um, it just felt awkward and weird. And if I had been not good in my life and I was just feeling bad about myself, I never wanted to pray because I just felt too much shame and too bad about myself. And, and then I would only pray when I felt good about myself. But then I was kind of an arrogance in that because I was feeling good about myself. And so it's been a long evolution of coming to the point where I can just commune with the great mystery. I can commune with the great loving power that's out there because that's part of what I know God to be is just, just love. Just, a, I actually had a really mystical experience once. I had a dream when I was in the middle of that search and I had a dream that I was on the other side and I was flying over this field, this giant field that was filled with all of these waterfowl, birds, and it was in just an intense feeling of love like I've never felt before. Like love as a force, almost like the light of the sun when it's really strong. Like that was love and it was everywhere. And I had just this kind of visceral experience. And so I believe that God is, is as they said in the 60s, God is love. And um, so it's an evolution now where I train myself to on a daily basis just simply open my heart and just share what's in my heart, and it's okay. And if that needs to be, I'm whiny and I'm complaining, it's okay. I'm a deeply flawed person. If it is gratitude for my life, for what I have, for my family, for my health, for the nice things that I have, for the privilege that I have as, you know, as a wealthy white male in today's society, I'm, I'm grateful for that, and I wanna use that privilege to try and help as much as I can be of service, as much as I can. Um, and, you know, if I need, if I want an outcome, I can pray for that outcome. God doesn't really work on my timetable. So probably uh, the highest form of prayer in my mind is thy will be done, not mine. God, your will be done, not my will. What is your will? What is God? When I'm in alignment with that, we talked at the very beginning, Tammy, about purpose. That's where purpose that's when it rings like a bell. You know, at the end of the meditation and they ring the bell, dung. Like for me, that ringing of that bell is your will. Um, my will is in alignment with the creator's will. I, and it's just, mm -hmm. I don't know that it is, but 
I, I, I strive for that feeling because that's when things line up. Mm-hmm. So it took me years to get to the point where um, I could just share my heart in that way, um, mm-hmm. kind of mm-hmm. unedited. Yeah, you, you used the word commune. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, commune, commune, um, not so even language so much. Um, I think about it. I have a son who's 13. His name's Walter. And um, I love this kid so much. I mean, I love Walter so much. Sometimes I just find myself like staring at him and he's just so miraculous and beautiful. And, uh, and I've looked at this creature grow up for 13 years and my heart is just, sometimes it just spills with love for him. And think about how much infinitely more God must love each one of us. I know that sounds, I sound all of a sudden like a born again, but it's true. Like that, the intensity, the intensity of the love that the creator has for its creation is, is gotta be staggering and, and a thousand, thousand times greater than my love even for my kid. So if my kid has a tantrum, if my kid breaks something, if my kid struggles with, tells a lie, or my kid has a hard time at school or gets in a fight at school or something like that, like I have such, there's consequences, but there's so much forgiveness there. And uh, I think that's an important thing to understand in this, in this quest. Now, Brain, I, I pulled out a quote from your introduction to the book Soul Pancake, and I want to talk about it. And here's the quote, I believe art and its expression are the same as faith and its expression. And, you know, most people know you as an actor and, you know, they associate you with Dwight on The Office. And here we are, we're talking about faith and its expression and being on purpose. And I can imagine someone going, wait a minute, what do you mean? How was his playing of Dwight in The Office? How does that have anything to do with faith and its expression? What's the connection here? <laughs> great, uh, great question. So um, you, you're good. You go right to the heart of it. I love it. Um, that's something that I've struggled with for a long time. You know, I have always had this interest in spirituality. I, maybe it's genetic. Maybe it was my parents growing up with these kind of wild, you know, hippie discussions in our house, bohemian discussions uh, as a kid, uh, reading holy works. Uh, but I, um, but here I am playing like the dorkiest, most annoying comic character on a sitcom. And, and, and it there seems like a weird dichotomy of me, the actor, uh, talking about spirituality, playing the least spiritual person ever on the history of television playing Dwight who wouldn't believe in anything uh, other than what's in front of his face. And uh, so it starts to get complicated. So part of that is I always felt a little bad because comedians in Hollywood, no one in Hollywood talks about God, but comedians, if anyone is going to, it's going to be a more dramatic actor or person. It's certainly not anyone in comedy. It's a comedy killer to talk about God or faith or spirituality. So I risked a lot by going down this path. Mm-hmm. Um, that's number one. Uh, number two is um, how is Dwight uh, an expression of faith? Well, let me start by saying that it is a uh, – one of the things when I left the Baha'i faith and then came back to it, I discovered all these writings about the um, equating – art with faith. So, um, 
the son of the founder of the Baha'i faith, he had a quote that said basically, um, when, when you put the paintbrush to the paper, is, it is as if you were kneeling in the temple. That uh, the making of art is sacred and an expression of the divine. There's a lot of different reasons why it is. Number one, it's service. So you're making a beautiful wall hanging. You're crafting a beautiful plant holder. You're writing a poem There's a, uh, you're, for someone to enjoy that makes them look at their life differently. You're singing a beautiful song. You're, you're creating a character where one wasn't before. Um, these are uh, creative acts of service that make the world a better place. Um, Number two, that also uh, emulates God, the creator. You know, you notice I call him, her, it, this force, the creator, because it helps me get closer to the creator. And uh, God uh, creates, and then when humankind creates as well, we're emulating the creator. There's a blank page, and we put a poem or a painting on, or a story on that blank page where there was nothing before, we're emulating the best of our creator. Um, I also think that, you know, the, the, the best thing about Dwight is when I get those messages on social media or I meet people that said, like, my sister was really sick, but every Thursday night we would gather around the TV and we would watch The Office and we would just laugh and thank you, thank you for the laughter uh, it helped us so much and it brought our family together. And, um, and I, I get that a lot and realizing like, okay, yeah, we're just doing kind of a dumb workplace comedy, but, uh, it has helped people. And, uh, I feel, uh, gratified about that. And I think that's the, you know, I talked about, you know, thy will not mine be done. God's will, God's will usually wants us to be, I think, to be in service to others. Uh, and that's really the highest expression of the will of the of the divine will is in is in all of us being in service to other people. I think that's where it can get a little tricky for me when I think of art as an expression of mm-hmm. faith and of being of service. I mean, some art has that effect on me, but a lot of other art doesn't. Afterwards, you know, I might feel negative. I might even feel you know more mean or more despairing or all kinds of things, but I'm sure someone else would have a different response. They might say, you know, I love that horror film. It was so entertaining, you know, and I would just be like, oh my God, I had, you know, I felt traumatized when I walked out of the Mm. movie theater. So, Mm. you know, have you had to turn down a lot of roles that you thought, I don't think this role is actually this film, this theatrical performance. I'm not sure this will be of service to people. Or do you not see it that way? Yeah, no, I, I definitely see it that way. I have definitely done some projects I have uh, that I would call uh, morally questionable, morally dubious, um, uh, that I needed to take for one reason or another. Um, but I turned down work I feel that makes the world a worst place because there are there are it's that's a real tough discussion. You could have an hour long podcast about about art and. Um, what constitutes art and, and versus just entertainment. Um, but uh, I have turned down, in fact, it just happened the other day that I turned down a movie that was about rock and roll 
Um, and I love rock and roll and grew up listening to it and was in a rock band in high school. And uh, I love rock of the 70s and, and whatnot. But it just, it was, the story was just about hookers and tits and cocaine and, and big deals and wads of money. And, uh, and it didn't have any, it didn't have any redemption to it whatsoever. And I just don't want to be a part of that. I don't want to be a part of, Fortunately, because I was on a TV show, I have a little money in the bank, and I don't, I don't have to take all these jobs. But I don't want to be a part of something that I feel uh, takes humanity in the wrong direction. Uh, that being said, you know I've done stuff, you know, action movies or big dumb comedies that I feel like they're kind of they're neutral, but they don't degrade humanity. Mm-hmm. In the projects that you're the most excited about. And in your work with the media company, Soul Pancake, what gives you that feeling? Like you could give us some examples of some projects and you feel like, oh my God, this is so on purpose for me. I know I need to do this project. Um, yeah, the, um, that's one of the amazing things that Soul Pancake has become this kind of laboratory of, uh, of media because we have a YouTube channel. That's one of our main outlets. We do other stuff on TV and in other channels, but it's an amazing, uh, for instance, my wife and I do a lot of work in Haiti, uh, working in girls education and, uh, scholarships and literacy. And, uh, I found out about all these Haitians living, being stuck as, uh, migrants as, uh, in, in Tijuana, Mexico. So they had gone, all these thousands of Haitians had gone to South America and then uh, were, tried to get up to the United States and all got stuck in Tijuana. So right now, you go to Tijuana, there are thousands of Haitians there. I mean, it's crazy. So I found out about this and I was able to go to our company. We were able to get some money um, from some different places to go shoot a video there. So we got to go do a video in Tijuana, meeting the Haitians, hearing their stories, seeing their faces. And, uh, you know, tens of thousands of people have now, or hundreds of thousands of people have now learned about this story that didn't, they didn't know about it before. So um, that's, a really, that's a really cool thing. We have a show called The Science Of... Um, and we explore, like the, the big hit version of that was called The Science of Happiness. So we were reading about positive psychology. I'm sure you have a lot of positive psychologists on, the, mm-hmm. on your show and uh, learning about it. And we got to make a, a show for millennials uh, about positive psychology uh, wrapped up in a really just fun six or seven minute video. Uh, we did one on gratitude. It's got, I don't know, 5 million, 10 million views on it. Um, so we get to take these big ideas and deliver them to an audience. It's like a dream come true. It's a, it's a playground for ideas and positive content. Now, I want to circle back to something you said, Rain, that really got my attention. You said that at a certain point, there was a profound shift in your heart. And I thought that was so beautiful and it made me curious about kind of how you would describe that from the inside and especially to somebody who might be listening who might say you know I've had 
some profound shifts, but they didn't last. My heart didn't really change in its shape or contour such that I have the kind of faith that Rain's talking about, where he knows in his being what it's like to be a soul and to have this kind of communing relationship with God. I've tasted it a couple times, but I haven't really shifted in any kind of major way. How do you address that person and share with them more that inner shift? Yeah. Um, good. I want to keep it as personal as I can make it because that always is more effective than I have a tendency to kind of go to ideas. Um, but the shift was long in coming. Um, I won't say that there was like one aha moment or one kind of spiritual breakthrough where all of a sudden I had all the answers, but it started incrementally. Um, there was a decision for me. Uh, I think a lot of times it comes through pain, like really intense pain. I went through some periods in my life where uh, there was incredible personal pain and turmoil and there's nothing like weeping in your bed at five in the morning to uh, after having not slept all night that to help clarify this stuff. So, uh, but for me, uh, as I turned back to my faith, the Baha'i faith, and sort of reading the holy writings of the Baha'i faith and, and exploring it, um, that was, there were a lot of, it's always two steps forward, one step back. So there's not... As you described it, and as you described the listener, maybe they had a spiritual experience or ha had a, a shift in their heart, but they're like, well, it didn't translate. And it's like, I would say that for me, I don't know about anyone else, but I know that for me, this has taken decades. I'm not arrived or anything like that. I'm not a guru. I'm not uh, spiritually uh, arrived or mature or anything. I have a few things that are working for me a lot better than they were working for me 10 or 20 years ago. That's all I know. And what it takes is discipline. Um, there is a great word, devotion. So I don't know the root of it. Uh, I should look it up and do some research sometime, but I think about this word devotion because when you have devotion, when you express devotion, you are devout. And when you think about someone who's loyal, they're devoted right? So there's, there's, um, maybe that's where Devo, maybe that's where they got their name. No, that was de-evolution. Never mind. Um, so devotion, uh, is, uh, uh, is a really cool word and, um, uh, but it takes a uh, discipline. I don't even know why I brought that up, but we'll leave that in. Um, but it takes a, a kind of a discipline to, put that shift into action. So for me, what that has been is um, attending spiritual gatherings, um, actively seeking to be of service to other people in the world, taking time out for myself to be in nature, um, uh, being a better husband and father and more connected to people, um, listening better on a daily basis, uh, taking my inventory kind of on a daily basis of like, am I, how did I do today? Um, am I carrying any, um, any resentments or, 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 or defects or things that are holding me back? How can I be a better person tomorrow? Um, a daily prayer and meditation. So it's almost like 
if you if you want to run a if you want to be a triathlete, like y- you can't just have a shift in heart to be a triathlete. You have to have a shift in heart, but then you have to train for it and and work at it and and buy a bicycle and keep that bicycle well maintained. And you, there's all these things you need to do. So I think the the spiritual path is um, is is one that takes great. Uh, it, it takes a practice. There's a daily practice. So it's not enough to have that shift in the heart. Mm-hmm. Now, you also mentioned that for many actors or certainly for a comedian, it would be a career killer to be out talking about devotion and mm-hmm. your love of communing with God in the way that you are. And so I'm curious to know, did you carefully consider this? Did you just know, look, I'm going to have to do this, come what may? What was that process like for you? Well, it's uh, I'm I'm much more uh, out as a as a spiritual uh, thinker and person now. I mean, if you look at my Twitter feed, it will have a dumb fart joke next to um, a spiritual quote or a link to something or a, a holy uh, quote or a great video that's inspiring. So uh, people know that I do both. Um, and uh, it probably has hurt my career, you know. There's probably a lot of people that were like, oh, maybe we should cast Rain Wilson in this. You know what? That guy's a weirdo. He's like some kind of – he belongs to some weird, unpronounceable religion, and he's always talking about God. Like, you know what? I think he's probably in a cult, and he's weird, and let's stay away from him. So it probably has hurt me. Um, it certainly You're getting helped. big opportunities to be on podcasts like Insights at the Edge. Uh, Come here on. we go. Come on, Rain. Here we are. Here we go. Um uh, this this could be it. I could be discovered. That's right. I could be discovered. Um, so yeah, but uh, I've I've just it's been a it's been a it's been a struggle. But remember, I I was I, I did the office for a long time, and and this is just who I am now. You know, I'm both of these things. I have to. I think that's part of the spiritual journey too, and looking at our at our soul and our the divine aspect of ourselves is we are filled with contradictions. Uh, one of my contradictions is I like insanely stupid humor and playing ridiculous characters and uh, dick jokes. And at the same time, you know, I love reading Meister Eckhart and, uh, and Thomas Merton and, uh, and meditating um, and uh, I've, that's a contradiction that I have. What are contradictions that you have, Tammy? Well, well, we'll get there in a moment, but I I would like to know what are what are some of your favorite dick jokes? <laughs> I am not gonna I'm not gonna tell a dick joke on insights. From no, you Ed's could, you could. podcast. You could one dick joke, just one. One dick joke. Okay, I'll tell you one. I okay, sometimes you're... I wish I had one. It's not really a joke. I'm not good at jokes, <laughs> Rain. I tell you what, you stick. You stick with. Stick, the new no, I'm going to stick with what I do good. <laughs> do good. Do well. Okay. So, what are one of my contradictions? I would say, I as much as I recognize unity, I'm a fiercely competitive person at the same time. Just mm. it's in me. I'm, I have like a lion's roar in me. Yeah, and that's and that's so. Oh, there's such so many great spiritual lessons to look at at that because. Of course you are. Of course you're wired to succeed and to dominate. Like we were, 
we were scrabbling with thigh bones and living in caves and hoarding corn, you know, for tens of thousands of years. So to compete and to get ahead is it's part of our imperative as human beings, which is awesome. Unfortunately, when that's unchecked and it simply becomes about the ego, then, you know, then we become like our president, you know, um, but, uh, but at the same time, when you can harness that for good, as you have, you have built a, co- a company from, from nothing uh, that has delivered hundreds and thousands of hours of amazing audiovisual content about you know, people realizing their potential and connecting to their true selves. You know, you've done a great thing. So it's, uh, there's so many great uh, things about you know, competition uh, great spiritual lessons and all this stuff. But you see, when we examine our, our contradictions, there, we can learn a lot. I think people stay away from the dark side, you know, the Jungian shadow side. We, we put that under the carpet. We put that in the closet. We don't want to look at that stuff. But our addictions, our predilections, our, our need for, for, for power or control or whatever it is, like we can embrace all this stuff. Now, Rain, there's just one final thing I want to talk to you about, which is you mentioned the founder of the Baha'i faith, Baha'u'llah. And, you know, I don't think very many people are familiar with him. I'm not. I know Mm -hmm. that he's the founder of the Baha'i faith and that he lived approximately 200 years ago in Iran, but that's all I really know. And so Mm -hmm. what I'd love is if you could introduce me to this great teacher. Uh, Well, thank you. Yeah, uh, certainly. Uh, this weekend, I don't know when this podcast will air, but October 22nd is the 200th birthday of Baha'u'llah, the bicentennial of Baha'u'llah. So mm-hmm. Baha'u'llah, the, the word means glory of God in Arabic. Uh, it was a title that was given to him. He was a Persian nobleman who turned his back on being a nobleman and gave away all his possessions. He was known as a young man as the father of the poor because he spent his life serving the poor and turned his back on riches, just like the Buddha. And Baha'u'llah proclaimed himself to be a promised teacher from God um, in a long tradition of divine teachers, such as Zoroaster and Krishna and the Buddha and Abraham and Moses and Jesus and Muhammad. Baha'is believe that God sends these divine teachers, prophets, uh, Baha'is call them manifestations of God, sends them down every 500 to 1,000 years or so to update humanity spiritually. And Baha'is believe that Baha'u'llah is the most recent of these teachers and that his message is the most spiritually relevant message from God for humanity. Um, Baha'u'llah spent his whole life being tortured in exile, um, his family members killed and tortured. Um, he ended up living most of his life in prison in Palestine uh, after being banished to Iraq and then Turkey. And uh, he wrote many books and hundreds of tablets. And uh, Baha'i, Baha'is believe that Baha'u'llah has brought a divine springtime to humanity right now. We're in kind of some really terrible spiritual growing pains. Um, but that's, that's who Baha'is believe uh, 
uh, Bible eyes. I was with you until the divine springtime. I, I don't think many people have the sense that we're currently in a divine springtime. Well, we might we might be in the depths of winter right now, but there's a springtime around the corner. No, it's um, there is uh, humanity will need to unite. Uh, it may be after uh, unprecedented destruction, um, e ecological and, and military. Um, but eventually humanity will need to unite and come together with love and service and social justice. Um, and this is, this is the main teaching of Baha'u'llah is the, humani the, the harmony of humanity. Why so, was Baha'u'llah tortured and imprisoned? Well, because he lived in the Muslim world and proclaimed himself to be a spiritually inspired teacher. And that did not go over well with the Muslim clergy and, uh, and the authorities. So uh, they tried to shut him down and banish him to the farthest corners of the, of the empire. Mm -hmm. And if Bahu'llah is the most recent divine messenger giving us the updated teachings that we need right now for this time we're in, could you summarize in terms of this divine springtime, and I, I hope the Baha'i faith is right, that that's <laughs> going to emerge from our current winter. What would you say are a couple of those core teachings that are new, that we need now, that are updates, if you will? Well, there's a lot of what he was teaching in the mid-1800s uh, are very important to us as contemporary Americans or people in Western society. So Baha'u'llah taught about gender equity uh, at a time when women were treated like mules and as a spiritual teaching that women and men are both creatures with souls and women uh, uh, need to be uh, are equal to men, should be educated the same as men, treated the same as men, given the same power as men and, you know, we see eruptions about this all the time in the contemporary world, but Baha'u'llah was talking about this in the 1860s and writing about it as a, as a spiritual imperative. Um, one of his spiritual teachings is the elimination of extremes of wealth and poverty. That's a teaching for this day and age. There's always been the very rich and the very poor, but right now that inequity uh, threatens to destroy our, our race. Um, the I forget what the number it is, but what is it like? Forty-seven billionaires, mm -hmm. you know, own as much as the bottom half of humanity. Um, there's a, but Baha'u'llah has a spiritual perspective on this that uh, we uh, need to find a spiritual solution to that really complex issue of uh, economic inequity. So a lot of Baha'u'llah's teachings are very socially, uh, what you'd call socially progressive, and are, you know, they're they're kind of accepted as fact. If you go to college, liberal college in the United States, this stuff is all accepted as as a fact. Um, but really, the pioneer in so many of these ideas were what Baha'u'llah was writing about in the 1860s and 1870s. This may be a strange thing to say, but I notice I really like saying his name. I've never heard it said out loud before you just said it, and I think I pronounced it incorrectly based on That's the phonetic you were writing. I was, yeah. I was trying. Yeah. Yeah. I was trying. I was moving in the right direction. But yeah. Baha'u'llah, I noticed there's a certain, it has that kind of like hallelujah feeling, the name itself. <laughs> it it's got a little hallelujah in it. It does. Um, so in, in Arabic, Allah is God. So the end part, Allah, 
is God, and Baha means glory. So U is of. So it's like Baha'u'llah, glory of God, and it does have a nice ring to it. Okay, just finally, Rain, two things. First, I just want to thank you, and I want to thank you for being such a faith-filled, courageous person, dick <laughs> jokes included, because you're being yourself. You're being yourself, and you're coming out strongly with your heart. And I just want to thank you for that and celebrate that. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate that. And then finally, this program is called Insights at the Edge. And one of my curiosities is to know what someone's current edge is. And by edge, I mean kind of like what you're working with right now that might even be a little challenging for you that you think of as your growth edge. Yeah, it's, um, I'm at a, that's a great, oh, great question. And I, I'm at um, a point of growth right now where, you know, in seeking to align myself with God's will, like, what the hell do I do next? You know, I'm, I was on the sitcom and I do some acting here and there um, and uh, developing and writing some projects and stuff like that. I'm also working in Haiti and, um, you know, wh with what I know, you know, where next? I really honestly don't know. And it scares me because I know what I want. I want to be successful in show business and for people to love me. <laughs> and maybe that's not, um, and that's part of my insecurity. It's part of my shadow side. It's also totally understandable. But, you know, what next? Because what next may not involve people loving me. It may not involve being successful in show business. It may be kind of a deeper level of service. So, um, and that's scary to me. Yeah, look um, what happened to Baha'u'llah. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, I, so I don't know. That's, that's, that's where I'm at. It's like, what's my, what's my deeper, what's my deeper purpose? Thank you for sharing that. And thank you so much for being a guest on Insights at the Edge. I've been speaking with Rain Wilson. He's an actor that I'm sure many of you have heard of and watched playing Dwight in the TV series The Office. He's the author of the autobiographical book The Bassoon King and one of the creators of a digital media company called Soul Pancake, dedicated to making stuff that matters. Rain, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. This was a really fun and great discussion. Thank you. We talked about stuff that matters. We did. We did. Check thank that you. off the box. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tim. Soundstrue.com. Many voices, one journey. <laughs>